Today's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and can be found on page 1144 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Now we know that if the tent, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, <clears throat> we have a building from God, not or an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and has given to us a spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jody. What happens when you die? That is a question that has sparked more debates and puzzled more philosophers It's inspired more stories and caused more comfort or trouble, depending on your particular point of view, than any other question that could be asked. And no question deserves a clearer answer. What happens when you die? You know, there are a lot of people in this world who believe that when you die, it's over. You're done. You're history. There is no continuing afterlife at all. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is James Taylor. Perhaps you like his music as well. I love his songs, but I don't care much for his worldview. One of his songs, for example, reveals his worldview very clearly. It's called Up From Your Life, and it says this. So much for your moment of prayer. God's not at home. There is no there there. Lost in the stars, that's what you are. Left here on your own. You can only hope to live on this earth. This here is it for all it's worth. Nothing else awaits you. No second birth. No starry crown. A lot of people believe that. See, a lot of folks in this world believe that there is nothing like the soul at all. But rather we are mere products of evolution walking masses of cells and synapses and electrical impulses without any eternal purpose. Socrates said that death is one of two things. Either it is annihilation and the dead have no consciousness of anything, which is James Taylor's view, or it is really a change, a migration of the soul from one place to another. Those are really your two basic options, aren't there? Aren't they? Either you end and that's it and it's over and done. There is no you anymore. Or there is an afterlife. 
Which option will you choose? I'm beginning a new series of sermons today. This uh, series is entitled, What the Bible Really Says About... And we're going to be looking the next four weeks at four different provocative topics. This series is a part of my four-week challenge. If you were here last Sunday at Easter Sunday, you know that I said to those of you who were brand new in our church, why not come back and try us out for four weeks in a row? And we're going to look at a series of messages on what the Bible really teaches. Well, notice the main word in that series title is the Bible. See, that's our starting point. And I just want you to know that here at UPC, we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. That is to say that we believe that it is true, that it's reliable, and that it is our authority. We believe that the Bible rings true, in other words. That out of all the possible sources of information that might be out there, the Bible has held up and passed the tests of time and of scholarship and experience. And that it does the best job of answering the questions that the human heart is asking. And meeting the desires that the human heart has. Now you may not agree with our starting point. And I'm glad you're here to at least uh, say with us that a book like the Bible, which has been around for, what, 3,500 years or so, is certainly worth a good solid hearing. So for the next four weeks, we're going to hear the Bible. We're going to listen to what it says about these different topics. And today's topic is the afterlife. What I want to do today is share with you four realities and four implications. So time being what it is, I'm going to talk really fast. So follow along. You've got a a place in your worship guide where you can take some notes if you wish. Let's start with reality number one. One day, and I think this one is one to which we will all agree... One day, you and I are going to die. One day, death is going to knock on our door. Unless Jesus Christ comes back first, which could happen, but odds are that you're probably going to die first. One day, there's going to be a grave marker with your name on it. One day, people are going to pick up the newspaper and there will be an obituary about you. Death has been called the great equalizer. What that means is that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how successful you've been, what party you belong to right now, how young and healthy you feel, death will visit you eventually. This is reality number one to which we need to give attention. And in the text that you heard read a few moments ago, verse 1 says something about death. Look with me again at verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing this letter to Corinth, says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul is talking in that verse about death. And you notice that he's talking about you and I living in this thing called an earthly tent. That's his way of talking about this body that we're in. Every day, Paul is saying, it's deteriorating. The tent that you're living in right now is in a process of falling down, of being weathered and of being beaten up and losing energy and things like that. I can certainly feel that. I play racquetball and I'm in my mid-50s and the times I beat up against the wall and fall down, make they don't go away as quickly as they used to. 
Those bruises last a little bit longer than they used to now that I'm 56. I'm feeling the earthly tent, you know, beginning to fall down. Earlier in this book, in fact, chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says that we are outwardly wasting away. Do you feel it? Some of you do. Some of you feel that you're wasting away. And what Paul is getting at in this text is that one day our bodies are going to be entirely destroyed. That is, our legs will stop walking, our hearts will stop beating, our lungs will stop filling up with air, our eyes will stop seeing Our cells will stop repairing themselves and we will be dead. Reality number two, however, is something about which there's a lot more debate. There are many people that are not willing to go beyond reality number one. But that's why this series is called What the Bible Really Says. Reality number two that is taught in the scriptures is that you will live on beyond the grave. You will not cease to exist when your body dies. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. Paul says in verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up, By life. Now you see in that little passage Paul is using these metaphors. He's talking about being clothed or unclothed. But what he's really getting at is that he believes that death is not the end. He's looking forward to, verse 2, a heavenly dwelling. Some kind of existence beyond the grave. Now how can Paul look forward to that? Well it's because he believes in the soul. He believes that human beings, and this is what the Bible teaches are made up of two things, not just one. We're not just body. We are body and soul. The body is the material part of us, the part you see. The soul is the immaterial part of us, the invisible part. But both are real, and each is as important as the other one. The Bible teaches real clearly that when you die, your soul and your body will be separated from each other, Your body will go to the grave and begin the process of decomposition, deterioration, disintegration. While the soul will not die, it will not disappear, it will continue to exist. It will be conscious, it will be alive and acting and thinking and feeling. This is the continuing existence of your soul. The scriptures teach that when the body dies, the soul goes to one of two places. Heaven or hell? Let's talk about those two. You're not going to find them on a map anywhere. And you will search the scriptures with all kinds of questions about where they are and what they look like and what people will experience there. And you will not find the answer to every single one of your questions about heaven or hell. But you will find this. You will find enough information about heaven and hell to know that you want to go to one place And you must not go to the other. It does tell us enough to know that. Let's talk about them. Heaven. Heaven is a place of celebration, of rest, and of reward. It is the conscious, joyful presence of God and his angels and all of his people who have gone before. In Luke chapter 23, it's called paradise. 
Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? I'm going to talk about this a little while later today, but when Jesus was dying, he had two thieves on both sides of him. And to one of them, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was talking about what you and I typically call heaven. And that's all right. But the technical term there is paradise. The psalm writer talks about it in Psalm 16. Look at these verses that are on the screen. The psalmist says, speaking to God, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You see, he's saying there that my body might be in the grave, but you're not going to let me decay. No. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's the psalmist poetic way of describing the pleasure, uh, the pleasures of heaven. Now back to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 5. Paul is talking about heaven in verses 6 through 8. So look with me again at verses 6 through 8 of our text. He says, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So do you see how Paul describes or defines heaven? He says that heaven is a place where you are with the Lord. You are away from the body but you are at home with the Lord. So Paul definitely believes that the soul continues to exist and enjoys the conscious, wonderful experience of the presence of God. Hell, on the other hand, hell being the other place where the souls of human beings might go after they die, is in the Bible pictured as a place of sadness, of isolation, of punishment, where the souls of those who reject Jesus go when they die. Now look, I know that the very idea of hell is absolutely repugnant to us. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. But the Bible is too outspoken about it for us to ignore it. In fact, are you aware that Jesus had a lot more to say about hell than he said about heaven? Most of our information about hell is given to us from the very lips of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we must listen to it, men and women and boys and girls. We must listen to what the Scriptures teach about hell. Ten times in the Bible, this place is called Hades. So that's maybe your technical term for what we typically call hell after we die. For example, Jesus once told a story about a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. You might know that story. It's in Luke chapter 16. This rich man rejected God and trusted in himself, in his own wealth in life, whereas the poor man named Lazarus trusted in God. He put his hope in God. And Jesus says in this text these words. He says, In Hades, where he, the rich man, was in torment, the rich man looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. What can we say about hell? Well, just based on that and some of the other passages of God's word, we can say that it's a place of unspeakable torment. The souls of believers go there and consciously, unbelievers rather, the souls of unbelievers go there and consciously experience anguish, pain, and sorrow. 
Those are the two destinations, you see, to which the souls of human beings go after the body dies. The body stays in the grave. The soul goes to one or the other, paradise or Hades, heaven or hell, the joyful presence of God, or on the other hand, separation and punishment from God. Let's move to reality number three. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, we're taking the telescope of God's word and we're moving even farther out in time. We've gone beyond death's door. We've entered, as we said before, into the what is called often the intermediate state where the soul resides. And now we're out beyond that to the day of judgment. Look with me at verse 10 of our text. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If you look in Revelation chapter 20, this same event, this same place, is identified as the great white throne of God. See, what we're seeing here is that heaven and hell that we were talking about are temporary Places. That's why it's called the intermediate state. It's between two things. The Bible says that one day, time as you and I know it, will be over. The final chapter of the story of planet Earth will have been written. And God will write the words, the end to human history. His plan for the human race, for you, for me, will have reached its fulfillment. And there will be this day of judgment in which... Every human being, living and dead, will be invited to appear, will be summoned to appear before God's throne. And with this invitation, there will be no no's. You will accept the invitation. Now, I want to answer three questions about the day of judgment that I'm sure everybody's asking. First one is when. Second one is what. Third one is why. First, when? When will this happen? When will this day of judgment take place? And as to when, I'm going to keep things really simple. Because I know that we could get off onto discussions about things like the millennium, uh, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, all these things that many Christians put between these different events. And we're going to skip all over that and immediately go to the simple answer that the day of judgment occurs after the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that is the event that will precede this day of judgment. The Bible tells us many things about the second coming of Christ. It tells us, for example, that it's going to be sudden. Peter says it's going to be like a thief. You won't be expecting it. The Bible tells us that it's going to be personal. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. There will be a trumpet call and Jesus will descend. And then thirdly, the Bible teaches that it will be visible, visible to the whole world. Every eye, it says in Revelation chapter 1, will see him. And when Jesus returns, the Bible says that at least two amazing things are going to happen simultaneous or sometime after his return. Two amazing things. One, the dead bodies 
Now get this, hold on to your chair. I know it's wild and crazy. But the dead bodies of every single human being who has ever lived will rise up out of their graves, will rise up out of the oceans, if that's where the ashes are, will rise up out of fields. If the body died in a field, it will be decomposed there. Will rise up out of wherever its resting place was and be reunited with the souls of those selfsame people. It says this in Acts chapter 24, verse 15, there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. That is the resurrection of the bodies of all of those people throughout all of human history. Remember I said earlier that there are going to be souls in heaven, souls in hell, the body will be in the grave. Well, now we see at the return of Christ the reunion of those bodies and souls to each other. The second thing that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is that the bodies of believers, and I'm talking about Christians, people who are trusting in Jesus, the bodies of believers will be suddenly changed and transformed. If you, for example, happen to be alive when Jesus comes back, you will look down and your body will be transformed right before your very eyes. You will still look like you, but you've never looked that good before. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery, says Paul. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. If you happen to be one of those whose body will be transformed, there will never again need to be a need for a wheelchair, for a crutch, or a doctor, or a hospital. No need of eyeglasses or hearing aids. That applies to many of you. Throw away your medications. You won't need those either. Get rid of your Clearasil students. Believe it or not, your skin will be perfectly clear and wonderful. We will be healthy and whole and joyful and at peace. Those of us who love Jesus and follow after him when he returns. We will be so glorified. We in our body will be so Amazing to look at and beautiful to behold that in C.S. Lewis's words, we will be strongly tempted to fall down and worship each other. But we won't because we will be in the presence of one who is so much more wonderful and so much more worthy of praise and worship, namely Jesus himself. We will be face to face with the one who went to the cross for us. That's the what, uh, rather the when question. What about the what question? What is this day of judgment? What will happen? What's it like? Let me just boil it down to one sentence. On this day, God will display his holy, righteous wrath towards sin and his utter delight and joy in his people. The entire human race. Now look, this is going to blow our categories. I realize that. Remember, this is the Bible here. This is not human reason, not human experience, but God's word. The whole human race will be brought before God and separated before him into two groups. Those who in this life ignored Christ failed to honor Christ as Lord of their lives, refused to repent of their sins, will be placed on his left. 
And the Bible tells us that those who did repent, did believe that Jesus died on the cross for them, did say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you and honor you as my king, high king of heaven. I love you will be placed on his right. Unbelievers will be examined and found wanting. Their sins will be exposed and they will be judged for their unholy thoughts and motives and words and actions. The verdict of guilty will be pronounced upon them and they will be sentenced to pay for their sins forever. While believers in Jesus will be examined but found complete in Christ. Their works will be judged as evidences of their faith. Their sins will be exposed as forgiven and paid for. And they will be rewarded with an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Why? Why a day of judgment though? Some of you might be asking that very honest question. I thought God was God of love. I thought God loves everybody. How in the world could God possibly do this? How could it be right? You know, I would give anything to not even tell you about hell and punishment and judgment But I can't hide that from you. As I said last week, you pay me to say the hard things and the things that God says. And and so to be a, a person of integrity with the word, you cannot ignore this reality. Why does he do it? Why the day of judgment? Why heaven? Why hell? Because God is holy and must punish sin. That's why. It says in Exodus 34 verse 7 that the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He can't. And see, the problem is you and I don't fully comprehend the sinfulness of sin. We don't get that, really. We don't see and really know deep down the extreme holiness of God. Not to punish people for their sin would be contrary to God's character and a violation of His word. But again, you might say, but I thought God was a loving God. Why would he want to punish anybody? And my answer is, the Bible's answer is, yes, God is loving. But hear this, anger is not incompatible with love. In fact, it proves love. What did you feel on 9-11? What did you feel when the body of Kaylee Anthony was found with tape on her mouth by the side of a road in a swampy ditch? What did you feel when Bernie Madoff defrauded investors of $65 billion? What did you feel when the truth came out about Tiger Woods? Anger. Why? Because you love your country. You love children. You love Tiger. He's our hero. 
And yet, what do we feel, friends? We feel anger. It's called in the Bible righteous anger, righteous indignation. It's not incompatible. It is not opposite of love, but a very real and vital part of love. In other words, judgment is a result of God's love for the world and a natural part of His holiness. God cannot stand sin any more than you can stand to fix a stopped-up toilet. But you do it because you love your family. Well, that's reality numbers one, two, and three. We've seen death. We've seen life goes on. Our souls continue in heaven or hell. We have a day of judgment. Let's move to the fourth and final reality. And that is, very quickly, you will spend eternity either away from God in a state of unending misery or with God in a place of unbelievable happiness. The one is usually called hell, but biblically speaking, it's more proper to call it Gehenna or the lake of fire. And the other we usually call heaven, but it's really biblically more accurate to call it the new earth. Everyone in this room will spend eternity in one place or the other. Read through the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation and you'll see this. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but for example, Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 talks about the lake of fire. It says the the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 21 talks about the opposite place, the new earth. Says The writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Next. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. May there be no one here that will miss out on the new earth. Implications. Can I give you, as we close, four implications of these terribly important truths. Number one, how you live matters. How you live matters. The words you speak, the things you do, the choices you make today have eternal consequences. The works you do, whether good or bad, will come back to either haunt you or bless you on the day of judgment. So, in light of these truths, fear God and obey Him. Second implication. If you're a Christian, my goodness, isn't it obvious what we do? We reach out to those who don't know Jesus Christ. We make friends of lost people. We pray for them. We share our stories with them. We invite them to church. We love them. We are the sweet savor of Christ at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in the store, everywhere we go. We bring the fragrance of Jesus, right? Third implication, if you're a believer, live in light of these truths we've learned. Live in light of eternity. Don't be surprised when you're frustrated and disappointed in this world. It's not your final place. The way it is now, it's going to be renovated. Verse 4 of our text this morning says that while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. 
Why? Why do we groan? Because we're longing for a better country. You know, things aren't going so well for you right now. One day they will. Don't have the best job in the world, the best home, the best marriage, the most healthy body. Well, one day you will have everything you could ever hope for on the new earth. In the meantime, live as a missionary. Live as a missionary because that's, who we, that's what you are. That's what I am. And then fourth and finally, if I'm speaking this morning to anyone who is not a Christian or somebody who's skeptical of these things, somebody who is still kind of out there and you're not sure about these, these truths, you haven't really closed with these things and made them your own worldview, what I say to you this morning is to keep seriously considering what the Bible says. Denial is not an option. The fact that you were here with us means you've heard it now. You can't deny it from now on. Read the Bible for yourself with an open mind. Ask God to reveal truth to you because what else are you going to do, right? I mean, are you going to play the lottery and uh, hope that you have a winning ticket? Are you going to roll the dice and hope that these things are not true? Are you just going to hope for the best in the future? Or are you going to plant your feet firmly upon the foundation of truth that millions of people down through history have found stands every test of human experience. If there's even a chance that these things are going to happen, then you should not let another day go by without getting things right with God. Now, how do you do that? Well, you remember earlier I was talking about the two thieves on the cross there besides Jesus? I think that holds the key. Because on one side of Jesus was this thief that was just hurling insults at Jesus, right? But on the other side of Jesus was this thief who said to the other thief, Look, guy, remember, we got our due because we're guilty. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then this thief looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what did that thief just do? He admitted his sin. He was honest and said to Jesus, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? I need your help. I need your grace. So, friend, if you are in the same spot, then the thing for you to do this morning is to admit your sins and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your mercy. Step into my life and take me into your family. I remember when I was a little child, I was swimming at my parents' lake house one time. And I got disoriented and sort of lost underwater. And I ended up under my parents' dock. And when I surfaced, I was under the dock. And I had just this little bitty air pocket to breathe in. And I panicked. I I just lost it. And I started yelling and screaming because I didn't know what else to do. And just in a few moments, I felt the strong arm of my brother, my big brother, grab me by the arm and pull me out from under the dock and up for air. And that's the situation that you and I are in. You know, Christianity is different from all the other religions out there. All the other world religions push some type of self-salvation program. It's up to you to get out from under the dock. Christianity says you can't. Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live and died the death you were supposed to die. And he left heaven to come to earth and grab you by the arm and pull you to safety so that you can know the joy of heaven and eventually the new earth. You've got to put your trust in him by screaming to him for help 
And he says in the Bible, he'll never turn a one of you away that comes to him by faith like that. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, it says in John 3, 17, but to save the world through him. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that these realities drive us to you. The reality of death, of heaven, of hell, of judgment. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, therefore you're feared. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. You didn't just stand up there in heaven and watch us perish, but you left heaven and came to us to rescue us from our sin. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today who has never made that commitment to you, that he or she will do it right now. Will simply say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm just like that thief. And I need your mercy. Come into my life and become my king. Change me from the inside out. Make me your child. Thank you for loving me and receiving me in your home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.